Welcome to the Vandy Sports Podcast. I am your host, Chris Lee. Our guest today, Mitch Light of The Athletic. This show, presented by The Well Coffee House, a Nashville-area coffee house that provides fresh roasted coffee, along with house-made pastries, breakfast, and lunch offerings. There are four locations to serve you in the Nashville area. Those are Brentwood, Green Hills downtown, and Bellevue. You can get more info at wellcoffeehouse.org. The Well Coffee House, where coffee changes lives. Thank you to our co-presenting sponsor, Wellspire, Nashville's Learning and Development Center, located in the Gulch. Our news presented by Sutherland and Belk, a family-owned injury law firm. If you or a loved one has been hurt in an accident, call Taylor or Russell at 615-846-6200. See what your rights are and if they can help. Tyler Brown has announced he will return to Vanderbilt next year. Vandy's closer is taking advantage of the NCAA's allowance of an extra year and announced on Instagram that he's going to be back for 2021. Brown will still have a year of eligibility beyond that if he chooses to pursue it. Our guest line presented by Bowl and Branch started by Vanderbilt graduates Scott and Missy Tannen. I had no clue what I was missing until I got Bowl and Branch sheets. They are fair trade certified, meaning they're made under safe conditions by men and women treated and paid fairly. Try them free for a month. You can return them, but you won't want to. Once you get the sheets, try the mattress. That was voted the best mattress of 2018. Go to bowlandbranch.com. That is spelled B-O-L-L. Enter the promo code VANDY and get $50 off your first set of sheets. Mitch Light joins us from The Athletic today. Mitch, hope you and your family are doing well on what is a beautiful day here in Middle Tennessee. It actually feels like summer today if you have been outside. Uh, well, I went outside to get the mail about a, an hour ago. And then, to be honest, Chris, if I was not talking to you right now, I, I was like, I'm going to go for a run about 2 o'clock when we're recording this. And I said, oh, no, I can't go for a run at 2. I've got to talk to Chris Lee. So, well, that as and- soon as we're and it's uh, it's very hot. It's, it's a little hotter than I like to go running in. Um, maybe I'm just lightweight. It's a little on the. It's about eighty and humid, and plus it's raining pollen from I'm the much sky. Tougher than you, obviously. I'm obviously. much tougher than you. It's actually about it's about twenty five two degrees too cold for me. So I uh, I'll figure something out. Are you one of those desert marathon guys? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> no, I'm not. But I did a story. Um, I freelance for Vanderbilt Magazine. And I did a story about a year, two years ago on uh, this former Vanderbilt tennis player named Meredith Dolhair. I think she had, a, I think that's her married name. I think she had another name when she played in the mid in the mid two mid nineties, right when Jeff McDonald got here. And she is one of those absurd runners where like, you know, it's hundred miles out in, in, you know, Death Valley, like literally hundred mile runs, 150 mile runs. She goes to South America and does these things and, you know, she runs on her treadmill for like three hours in the morning while her family sleeps and stuff. So I, I, I feel good about myself when I go three miles like four or five times a week. And she's out here running 100-mile races when it's 120 degrees. Given that you've done a story on one of those and I have not, what is it that makes people like that tick? Um, I, there's, there's definitely some sort of uh, obsessive compulsive and i'm not giving away too much because it was part of the story she had some addiction problems too and i think there's some something to that you know just overcoming addiction just uh finding something else to focus all of your energy in um so you know i wouldn't i don't wouldn't dare make a blanket statement that everyone who does that has some sort of problem like that but there's definitely 
something that in the way that, that makes you tick that, that I don't know, forces you or allows you to do that. Also, you have to be lucky with your body too. I mean, it's just running is not the most natural thing that, you know, it's, you know, there's very few of us that can, that are runners that don't have some sort of, you know, ankle knee. I've got hip problems every once in a while. And that's just, again, running, you know, 15 miles a week. This is hundreds of miles, you know, 20, 30, 40 miles at a time to prepare for races like this. So it's, it's really crazy. I'm sure like, I haven't read a lot. I started to read some stuff about it when I was doing the story. I'm sure if you dive into Netflix or something, there's probably a lot of documentary documentaries on stuff like this, but it's a, it's a fascinating kind of subculture of, of, of the racing community. Yeah. Speaking of that on Netflix, I watched a movie. Gosh, there's a couple of them. I think I've seen both a little bit. But about the people that do extreme climbing like El Capitan and places like that, that community, those are yeah. fascinating movies and fascinating stories. And if you or anybody else out there listening is looking for something to do for one night as you get through the pandemic here, those are some that I watched a while back that were very entertaining and just fascinating in terms of how those people worked. I think their brains are wired a little differently. I think that's part of it. Like if you do – a an MRI or whatever it is, like the, the the way that they think and and connect the dots and process things is just different than it is most of the rest of us. Yeah, and uh, Free Solo is the main, is the the popular one that you are probably referring to. I, I saw that it was out. Uh, I don't know if it's on Netflix, but that's you know the, the guy who who climbed El, El Capitan, if that's the name of it, without any sort of harness or rope, which is just absurd. So yeah, it's. Uh, that's what makes the world go around. A lot of different uh, characters out there. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Well, let's talk Vanderbilt sports. Not a lot to talk about, but one development today. Tyler Brown has announced he intends to return for, I guess, what would be a second junior year. That would seem to be very good news for the baseball team. Yeah, I mean, uh, his his early season struggles aside, he is a proven commodity um, in that, you know, assuming Vanderbilt loses Mason Hickman, uh, maybe that opens up a door, you know, and we don't know what's going to happen with Jake Eater. He might be gone, but then you might have Tyler Brown as a potential starter next year, or again, in the back end of the bullpen, um, you know, Hugh Fisher, assuming he's back would, would, would be a candidate to start to, um, so, or, or maybe to close if Tyler Brown, so just, you know, it's another really good pitcher. And so there's really, there's really no negatives, uh, with guys coming back except the roster crunch. And I'm not talking necessarily about the, the mandated number, whatever they agree to there. It's the, the available innings, you know, especially pitching. There's, there's only so many innings that can be pitched. And so some, some guys are going to have to make some difficult decisions. I say didn't um, already um, who transferred to right-hander who pitched some as a freshman chance Huff, I believe is transferring. Correct. Yeah. So that, that was no surprise. He was, I think one of maybe the only pitcher who hadn't pitched at all this year. And he, he was, was a midweek starter early last year. So I think there's some, some, some issues there, um, th- with him. So that, that was no surprise at all that he transferred. Yeah. And the names that you mentioned are just all case studies. And this is really interesting to see how this affects X, Y, and Z, because I would say right now, my perception is that stock and order in terms of pro ball Oh, probably Eater, Fisher, Hickman, Brown. Hickman, from what I was told, was really curious to see where this goes. I mean, he's a guy that I think could be right on the fence in terms of 
coming back. Eater and Fisher, I would say it would depend on where they're taken. I don't think Eater helped himself with his starts because they were just a little bit rough. But you know the pros. They may see that and just say, hey, um, he's a young guy. He's a work in progress. We like this stuff. It just depends on how organizations view him. But I think basically all the guys that you mentioned – there's a chance you could see any of them going either way in, in terms of going pro or, or or coming back. Brown, obviously the exception because he's made his announcement, but those other three guys are textbook guys to watch under this system, which if it goes five rounds, I don't think anything's official, but people I talk to that sounds the way that this is headed, those are all going to be very interesting cases. Yeah, Hickman's interesting because, and I know scout, I'm far from a scout, and scouts have certain things they look they can watch a guy in bullpen and, and make, you know, pretty strong, you know, assessment of him. I guess if you're looking for a knock on him, although, you know, he was in the rotation some as a freshman. So this I might be contradicting myself. But, you know, last year he was he was a midweek starter that then made some huge starts in the postseason. So he's not a guy that like last year had a huge body of work against elite competition. Now, again, he played he, he, he threw the decisive game. In the Super Regional, through the decisive game, the College World Series. So again, he, he did win some big games against good teams, but he didn't go through the week. The, the you know usually if you're taking a Friday night starter from the SEC, you you've you've had a track record of a guy going through ten straight weeks at least of fa- you know facing some of the best teams in the country. That's not the case with Hickman. So you know, or maybe it's just like we've kind of said, he's a really good college pitcher that might not have the, the stuff to be a, a you know first or second rounder. But again, I. I'm not a scout, so. I think he would be maybe something between a Patrick Raby and a Thomas Eshelman. Like, his control would be kind of in the middle of those two. Raby got a little wild the last year or two. Eshelman, of course, was a guy that walked, what, you know, four guys his whole junior year, whatever that was. It was, wasn't that many, but it was pretty absurd. It wasn't that few. Um, Raby had that high high spin fastball that he worked to perfection, and Hickman's got that too. Mason was always one of those guys from the jump that everybody said when he came to Vandy, better college pitcher than pro prospect. I think that's changed somewhat. I think he's more highly regarded by the pros now, but he's not that 95-96 guy that seems like you almost have to be these days with some exceptions of maybe Reed Detmers, who's got that super breaking ball but for the most part he doesn't have that velo that makes it work for the pro scouts uh and Eshelman is a guy if you want to use that as a comp that hasn't done super well in minor league ball so far and I don't think has pitched an inning in the majors yet yeah well that's uh you know that's a nice change for Vanderbilt and this isn't obviously to knock any of this program's pitching success because it's been as good as any program in the country over the last 15 years but Vanderbilt has had more than its share of Guys, you would consider better prospects than college pitchers. Uh, guys like Hugh Fisher, Jake Eater, that that have had their moments, but have always been thought of by the pros, you know, more highly than you would think based on their college production. So to have a guy like Hickman, a guy like Raby, up until you know mid through, you know, especially his first two years, it's it's nice to get just a guy who's just a really. There's nothing wrong with being just a really good college pitcher. Yeah, and I felt for a while, you go back and look at 2017, 2018. I mean, we tend to define the program by where it was last year, and then you go back and look at 2014. But 17 and 18, maybe some portion of 16, I would have to go back and look a little bit. But those were kind of times where we looked at the pitchers and said, you know, they're not getting out of them 
maybe what we thought they'd get coming in. Guys had trouble throwing strikes. Zach King was one of them. Uh, you can name several names in there. Raby was a guy that went from throwing a lot of strikes to really having trouble finding the zone the last couple of years. And the narrative on Scott Brown kind of got questionable for a little bit. Not questionable, but maybe people were asking more questions than they had been about his effectiveness in handling pitchers. And last year, we tend to remember the year because they won the title and Hickman and Rocker pitched so well in Omaha, so did Tyler Brown. Uh, but they still had some issues you know, here and there with that, too. You know, flashing forward to this season, Mitch, I asked him, Corbin, about the freshman. I said, has something changed in terms of your development of those in terms of strike throwers? In other words, have you changed something in your pitching approach with these guys? And we're seeing the results of the Schultzes and those guys throwing strikes right away. His answer to me was just, no, we found guys that really have those strike-throwing skills, more or less, which makes me think maybe the last couple of years there's been a little bit of a shift from not saying those guys can't be pro pitchers and good ones and make the majors, but from finding guys that are just elite arm talents and developing them to maybe going back to finding guys who were skilled and throwing strikes out of the jump. And that's certainly what they had in this freshman class. Yeah. And you know, some of them luck's not the right word, but some of it might be just how these guys pan out. As we know, they, in college baseball, now you accept commitments from guys, and sometimes before they've even thrown a high school pitch. You know, freshmen, uh, sophomores, the latest juniors, and, and some these kids are all ranked and scattered based on how hard they throw a lot. And sometimes they're just they're, there's a crop of guys that just don't develop into pitchers. They're just they're just hard. You know, they can throw the ball 95 miles per hour. And this current crop of Vanderbilt freshmen, you know, again maybe they they. Identified some guys earlier. I'm not discounting that at all. Uh, but some of it, just certain guys develop as they get older. Your body's a lot different at 14 than it is at 17. Oh, well, no doubt about that. One other interesting thing on this extra year of eligibility, I was listening to the D1 podcast that aired. I don't remember if it was Thursday or Friday, but they were talking about the schools that could be effective. Of course, TCU is the one that everyone thinks of. TCU has got. I think eight seniors who could come back. USC was another one. I think it has five seniors. But one interesting thing that I hadn't thought of, this could really affect the mid-majors more than some of the other programs. And I'll give you an example. You look back to Indiana State last year, which we saw in the Nashville Regional. That was a team that was just probably more composed of seniors than any college baseball roster I've ever seen. Kids that go to the Missouri Valley type schools often are good ball players, but they're not draft prospects. Those guys thought that the teams that would benefit the most would be the teams that were like that, that had a lot of guys that were going to come back as seniors another time around who really weren't going to get drafted high, and particularly now, not that the draft or now that the draft has been reduced. So I thought that was an interesting observation, plus the obvious implication that with all these players coming back, plus a recruiting class, we could have some super teams and just a really, really, really competitive postseason next year. Yeah, there's also some theories being thrown around there about mid-majors too, that they will benefit from guys coming back to the high majors in, in the elite schools. Like if some, you know, there's a few Vanderbilt guys that, um, kind of saw the writing on the wall that weren't going to play as much this year, and then they get some unexpected guys coming back, and then some freshmen coming in. So you transfer from a high SEC level down to a Missouri Valley. So 
Um, I, I've seen that theory out there that the biggest winners actually could be the really good mid-major programs because they're getting it on both ends. They're having guys come back, and then they're going to have some guys transfer down. MLB has not set a date to finalize the number of rounds in the draft, has it? I don't believe so. Yeah, I, I have not seen it. Uh, of course, the other question, too, is whether the NCA makes the one-time transfer thing a reality, too. That's the other thing that's the missing piece of the puzzle. Right, and there's some thinking. Yeah, there's some reporting this weekend that that if that does pass, it's still not going to be for. It won't be for the until the 21-22 class, or so a year. But then there's also some counters to that reporting saying, yeah, that might be true, but because of the circumstances, they'll probably be more lenient than ever um, about allowing because this. The slippery slope has already gotten really slippery. So, like, what's the point of stopping it now? So, I don't know. It won't be necessarily everyone is able to transfer, but there will be a lot of people on the move. Okay. If you are the guy that gets to make the decision on the one time transfer rule, okay? Because you've already got a situation where it's a lot of unknowns for all the reasons we have talked about. If you were the NCA, do you go ahead and say, hey, let's do that now? That might be a way to make it easier for these teams to get down to their roster limits? Or do you take the opposite approach and say, hey, there's already enough chaos and unknowns in an unusual situation that I don't want to introduce that element? Just baseball or across the board? Well, you can answer that how you choose. You, If you get to play well, God in that situation. Baseball, baseball. Yeah, yeah I, I think there's a roster size problem in other sports uh, as much as it is in baseball. I am not, I might be the minority in this, I am not in favor of the uh, transfer rule. I think you should, I, the grad transfer rule is fine. I think you should have to sit out. I think there's nothing wrong with sitting out. You know, they're still on scholarship. Uh, when a basketball player sits out, they're still on scholarship. A lot of, a lot of players develop from that. Um, you know, again, there, there's nothing wrong with it. If you weren't on scholarship, that's one thing. But there, and, and it gives you the opportunity to get an extra year of schooling and all that. Again, I might be in the minority most issues I'm for student athlete rights and and stuff, but this I don't I don't think I'm I don't think my opinion is anti student athletes rights. I just think there's nothing wrong with sitting out. Um, so I'm probably the wrong the bad the the the, the uh, wrong person to ask about that opinion. Uh, but based on your scenario, I, I don't know. There's 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 already so many guys transferring, especially in college basketball. So many grad transfers on the move. It just seems like if they open it up this late in the game. To, uh, to to allowing everyone to transfer. There's, you know, there's going to be so many people on the move, but, you know, kids can't go visit other schools now. So I'm kind of, I'm kind of babbling because I really don't know what the right answer is. But you're, if you had to make a decision right now, you would just say, not going to do it right now. Right. I want to say not going to do it right now or ever if it was my decision. Boy, the pitching staff next year. Let me just throw some names at you. You could literally see... Let's say, of course, Kumar Rocker's back. You could have, let's say that they go 50-50 with Eater and Hickman. Let's say that Eater goes, Hickman stays. I'll say that Fisher goes just because I think that he was a kid who was top half of the first round by some. I mean, who knows? The online drafts that are a year and a half early are hard to trust, but he was getting a lot of buzz as a top 10 to 15 pick. So let's say the team gambles on Fisher post-injury and decides to take him, you still got Hickman and Rocker, say, at the rotation. You can easily throw in Jack Leiter. You got Michael Doolin, Thomas Schultz, Sam Laboke. You got your closer, Tyler Brown, back. 
I think no matter how this pans out, and I'd have to look at the freshmen and see which of those guys could come in and be impact guys. I mean, I say I'd look at it, but you don't know till they get to campus. I think any way this thing goes, that pitching staff is loaded again next year. Yeah, no doubt about it. The, the, the benefit would be while you might lose a few guys, like you mentioned, all of the freshmen, while they didn't have a ton of innings, we saw enough of them that they're more known quantities. They have some experience. They pitched, you know, most of them pitched some big outs, even in, even in an abbreviated season. So some of that unknown of talented guys, you know, they're going to be good there. So yeah, I, I agree that the, the pitching staff will be outstanding. I guess the concern again would be the lineup because the, these guys have, have not gone through the 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 SEC season. Some of the young guys who we think have potential, but, but you know we don't know. It would be you know they missed a whole SEC season to get better to face better pitching. So I think that would still be an unknown going into next year. Well, two other things there too. Okay, before the season, they thought Luke Murphy was going to be a key part of their bullpen. Murphy just couldn't find the strike zone with regularity, but was hitting 95 and 96. Sometimes that first year back from injury, you don't find your field of pitching. That's a guy on the roster that doesn't get talked about that could come back and help them. Another one, Spencer Jones. Remember, Spencer Jones was regarded – maybe as much or more as a pitching prospect as he was a hitting prospect. Now, that arm injury took care of that, and he couldn't pitch this year, but that was a kid who was starting to come around with the bat, and I think under normal circumstances would have pitched for him, so that's two more names. Yep, yep. I mean, and again, we haven't named any of the incoming freshmen because you just don't know, so that's just guys that are almost definitely returning that we've been talking about. Where I think your roster crunch comes in is those guys that are having a hard time finding playing time right now, your fourth, fifth, sixth outfielders. Uh, You know, Matt Hogan's a guy that I thought would have played more. I hate to speculate, but you know that somebody's going to be gone that wasn't gone under that scenario. And to me, it is those guys that were not playing a lot. They either have to take a big step up or probably find another place to play. Yep. And that's, yeah, that's, th- those guys got enough of whether they were freshmen or sophomores who did not play in 2019 and were expecting bigger roles. I think we saw enough of the season at least and see where they can, where they can, where their place may be or where their place may not be. So I agree with you on that. Well, here's another one, Jason Gonzalez, because Jason is not going to be drafted this year. It can't really go to JUCO. So, I would think he either comes back or he could sign a free agent contract for 20 grand. I doubt he would do that given the upside that's been there. So that's another one that wasn't even on the roster that they have to contend with. Yeah. I mean, there you could go to Juco and just play for a year and, and try and, you know, put up big numbers there. So, you know, it depends on uh, what he, what he really wants to do. But I think we all, I think we all think that Jason wants to come back to Vanderbilt. Um, and so, yeah, I would expect him to be back if, if it works out. Yeah, I guess he technically could go to JUCO and just take whatever classes, but it wouldn't serve a purpose towards a degree. Right. So I guess that's why I was thinking that. So, yeah, I mean, lots of interesting options there. Anything else? Well, I I have a question for you because this one has been brought up, and I don't know how to answer it. How do you think this affects signing periods for basketball and football? Because you've got guys that just simply can't visit campuses right now. Well, yeah, basketball is the one. You know, people are committing. Um, I don't, I, you know, I follow, I follow all the recruiting people on on Twitter. So I see things happening. It's not like I'm following basketball recruiting, like reading stuff. I just thought, like I said, on Twitter, you know, there, there, there are 
2020 guys who commit um, and are committing and, and the, when's the spring signing period? It's in April 15th. So they can, they can sign. I mean, you can still sign people. You see people on Twitter, you know, I'm trying to develop a relationship with coaches. They can talk to them and stuff like that. So a lot of these kids have already visited campuses. Um, so that, you know, that they, they might know what they're getting into. It's not ideal for anybody um, for, for both sides of the schools or the kids. But I think that you'll see a lot of kids, Signing in the late in in the spring signing period. Well, the transfers are the ones that are interesting to me because unless you are giving a school giving a school a look a second, a look time, a second around time around that didn't get one the get first one. time, guys aren't able to visit campuses right now. So how do you sort through that? Are you sensing that kids are choosing? transfer destinations that they visited the first time or are they just taking a chance and committing to schools sight unseen a little bit of both i mean uh, adrian griffin i think his name was big commit uh transfer from illinois just transferred to syracuse and i don't know if he visited them at a high school or if he just leap of faith all these kids know you know kids who have visited other schools and sometimes it's not the most important you know what town it's in or what their weight room looks like. They just want to go play at a school or you just realize that in this time there are certain sacrifices you have to make. And one of those sacrifices is you can't get all the information that you normally would. So um, some kids can hang back. And, and if, if no one's reporting to campus until August or whatever, then there's really no need to commit anywhere. You know, I guess your only concern would be rosters filling up. Um, so I, I think it's kids. Each case is different. Some kids are going ahead and, in signing them, there's a, there's a lot of graduate transfers that are, are committing left and right every day. So uh, d- kids are definitely making their decisions. Anything else on the transfer market or baseball roster situation before I switch topics on you here? I don't think so. Let's talk Vandy Sports 100. Our Blue Ribbon panel of experts has made its picks. Uh, I say Blue Ribbon. I think you were the guy that I mostly consulted on this. You and I had a good conversation on Friday about this before I started unveiling it on Monday. Actually, I think we talked Thursday, and I threw out the honorable mention. But these are always hard to put together. The Vanity Sports 100, if people have not heard this, is my attempt at ranking the top 100 Vanderbilt players I have covered since I started the site in 03. That spans three sports, basketball, uh, on the men's side only, baseball and football. You gave me some good input on the top 100 and then the 25 afterwards. I actually did switch around some rankings based on your input. Who that I left out do you think has the best case of being in the top 100? If you can think of names you remember. Well, I'm looking at the the you know the list the last list that you sent me. So uh, did Justin Schools not make it? Justin School was I think 101. Okay, yeah, I mean not because he's 101. But you got a, a guy who's a three and a half year starter, played on two bowl teams, and then ended up uh, starting for half of the season for a a Super Bowl team. You know that that's a pretty good career. Um, we talked about Jared Pinkney. I think that might, might surprise a lot of people that he didn't make it. But then when you consider he really only had one good year uh, out of four, I think that's fair omission, especially when you look at some of the good players who did make it. Uh, I, I would say two of Pinkney's part years were. His fault, one, was not his fault. You know, he was an inconsistent player early in his career, had some bad drops and some 
some other issue, not nothing like off the field, a good kid, just just wasn't good enough early in his career on a consistent basis. And then this past year really wasn't his fault. It was more like quarterback play and his undoing. So, you know, those are two. Um, Corey Smith was, I think, everyone's a very a favorite player of a lot of Vanderbilt fans. I always kind of joke he's the best player in Vanderbilt history not to score a thousand points, uh, had a really solid career, even made second team all sec, I believe as a senior, um, Xavier Turner's an interesting one, had a great year for Vanderbilt, a good two year career here and, and did a lot for a team that ended up winning the college world series until the, you know, until he didn't play at the end. So, um, a lot of good names on this list. Uh, I think there's a couple of what ifs near the bottom, Warren Norman, um, who, who, you know, one of the more talented running backs I think we've seen at Vanderbilt, but injuries. And then Chris Nixon to me is the old, is one of the biggest what if stories at Vanderbilt. I, I I thought he was among the most talented quarterbacks or players Vanderbilt's had in 20, 30 years. Uh, I might be overselling it, but he just kept getting hurt. And I guess that, you know, that one, the, the year they went to the bowl game, he, he hurt his shoulder and was just in and out of the lineup. So I, I think Chris Nixon's a really talented kid that uh, could have had a great career. I wrote down about five names to discuss that you just mentioned. I'm going to go at them in reverse order of how you mention them. Let's start with Nixon. Nixon came at a weird time because everybody was used to looking at Jay Cutler, and that was their last glimpse at how the quarterback position was handled, which is a very high bar to be judged by. Well, I looked at Nixon's year, and yes, he was inconsistent at times and inaccurate, but he had that game at Kentucky where he had – I don't know what it was at 530 yards of total offense, which I think is still number one or number two all time. I don't remember which I think number two for some reason, but that's a guy that ran for, I think maybe 600 something yards through for, I think seven yards in attempt that year in, in a first year starting role. You look at that and use that as a baseline of expectation for the rest of your career. That's a kid that if things go right in my mind, may end up throwing one of those years, having one of those 27, 2,800-yard, 900-yard rushing seasons, uh, 2,800 passing, 900 rushing. That's a kid that, to me, that if he develops, might end up being one of the best we'd ever seen. From the way I remember it, he got popped on that shoulder down near that end zone where the scoreboard is against Alabama and was never the same Maybe my recollection of that is faulty, but I'll give you a chance to reflect on what I just said. Yeah, I don't remember exactly when he got hurt, but I, I thought he was, like like I just said, really, really good, really talented. I thought he was a good fit for, for what the staff wanted to do because, you know, if you recall, they they took advantage of Jake Cutler's athleticism early in Cutler's career before the, some of the wide receivers developed and before Jay developed. So that they they clearly had stuff, you know, option stuff in the offense to to take advantage of a skill set of a quarterback who could run. So it's not like he played at the wrong time or didn't have a staff that could utilize his strengths. I think that staff knew what to do with a quarterback like Chris Nixon. I just think it was some consistency issues and then health. So I'm with you. Just a big what if. Norman, I had forgotten this, I believe broke his hand in the Arkansas game his sophomore year, but the knees were really the things that undid him. The hand, I think, cost him the rest of the season. I don't remember exactly when the knee issues became a thing. I did read as I was researching the article, and I did not remember this. Both of his knees are bothering him. Let's say that you give Warren Norman a fairly clean bill of health. Look, nobody's going to be perfect. People are going to break hands and get banged up at times, but let's say his knees don't get destroyed. How does that career end? Where does he end up on the top 100, do you think? 
Well, the interesting thing is he might he might have hurt if he was healthy. We're healthy. He might have hurt um, Zach Stacy's legacy because yes. basically they came in. You know, Zach Stacy flourished as the you know primary ball carrier uh, after Warren Norman got hurt. So I think they would would have had a been a nice duo there. I remember just. He got hurt before the new staff came in, and I remember just as the sideline reporter talking to John Donovan every week, and I'd you know try to get updates on Warren Norman, and finally he's just like, you know, I know everyone wants to know about Warren Norman, but we just don't see it. The guy's been hurt. Like he's clearly not what he used to be. We've seen film; he looked great, but he's just not. You know, he wasn't trying to knock the kid. He's just he's not the back that everyone thinks he is because of this injury, um, these injuries, and uh, so we really you know didn't get to see what he could be. Pinkney is one that. I haven't gotten any criticism for leaving out yet. I think that I might at some point because, although I don't know, the players that are in there are pretty good. Either they had pretty stellar or really good lengthy careers at Vanderbilt, or some of the other guys were maybe underrated but kind of proved their worth in the pros ever since and at least erased the doubt about the talent component. Back to Pinckney. We tend to judge people by their ceiling. I try to take a balanced approach between that and career production. Ultimately, the reason I left him off, I think he scored a 54 in pro football focus, which measures things like route running and blocking. There was still an element of his season that he could control that he didn't seem to do a very good job of controlling. That happens often on losing teams. He certainly wasn't the only one. That was ultimately the reason that I left him just off rather than put him in is because the things that you don't notice outside the pass catching, that and the fact that he dropped a lot of balls his first two years, that's why I left him off. I mean, the upper end talent was what we all saw, but the body of work and how he finished out was why I did not have him on the list. Yeah, I mean, no arguments in a vacuum. Uh, You would think he'd be a top 100 player uh, based on the ceiling, like a like you said, like I said, but just uh, I, I agree with that line of thinking. And there's there's some good players uh, that, that are above him. Now, if he goes to the pros and turns into this seven or eight hundred yard a year pass catching tight end, which I would probably bet against right now, given the way the combine went. That's one of those that I might look back if I do this again in three or four years and say, hey, he was better than he showed, and that's the players that I give the benefit of the doubt to. I'll get to Adam Butler in a second uh, on that note, but that's that's the thing that I'll kind of watch with him is how does this go from here. Xavier Turner had a hard time knowing what to do with him, too, because he was a very talented player, fielded very well, ran well, made consistent contact, was on two great teams. Uh, but, boy... You want a guy to come up big when you need it the most, and failing a drug test and basically getting kicked out of the College World Series in the middle of it, that to me was the thing where I chose to leave him out. Yeah, I mean, that's that's fair. You know, it's – you can't – you can penalize him for that. You can't really penalize him too much for only being here two years because there's – there like Dansby Swanson only played two years because he got hurt. Not saying that you shouldn't, you know, you should judge a injury, season-ending injury to to getting, you know, kicked out of school, basically. Although he came back, I guess. He came back. He was in school for his junior year. Then he left. I forgot the details there. So, yeah, I mean, good good player, you know, impacted two, two very, very good teams. You know, the way things work out, you can argue Vanderbilt maybe doesn't win it if he's in the lineup and, and uh, Tyler um, – 
um, drawing a blank on Tyler's last name. The Tyler second Campbell. Baseman, third yeah. Base. yeah, Tyler Campbell had some huge hits in that postseason, the way things work out there. So, uh, you know, just a uh, 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 there's not too many guys. I mean, uh, there's been a, a, some, but he was just one of those plug in at a posi- position day one and he hit right away. Yeah, and that's one of those, you know, if it's a, I don't know, a knee injury or an arm injury and it never plays again, I probably give a little bit more thought to putting men. But again, that's, and I hate to pick on guys because addiction is uh, no small thing. And I have sympathy for people that are in the midst of that. But th- that's one of those, he did have some control over it. And that's kind of where I, Sometimes we'll draw a line because these are tough decisions. These are all good players, and so you got to distinguish some way. The other one, Corey Smith is one that I got immediate pushback on for reasons I understand. I would say to people, uh, at least see the list because for every guy that I put in, I have to bump somebody out, and that was a tough one. I actually had Corey Smith on my first drought. That's one of those that I think if he'd gone on to maybe make an NBA roster because his – Things that he did so well were so hard to quantify, and I put importance on those, but that's one of those, like, I think if he'd played a few games in the NBA, I probably would have put him in there, Uh, but that is kind of a maybe a tiebreaker I chose not to. He was a tough one. I think that's going to be easily one of the most polarizing guys on the list because I think when it's over, there'll still be some people that said he should have made it, and I can't tell them that they're absolutely wrong. Yeah, because I mean, he made one of the biggest plays in you know basketball school history. Uh, you know, obviously the play against NC State. So you, I know they're not the same thing, but if you're going to ding like Xavier Turner for not coming up big at a key part, key point for his team, sort of the opposite with Corey Smith, who came through uh, in one of the biggest wins in school history. You know, first of all, with the two pressure free throws on the um, intentional foul, and then the the in one, so he had three huge free throws and that layup. You know, five of the biggest points. In, in school history. Yeah, that was, and that actually weighed heavily. I mean, I put him higher on the list than probably his stats alone would have put him because of those kind of things. I, I would say I didn't adjust for it. The question is, I, I guess, did I do enough? I mean, who knows? It's hard enough to rate one sport and, and guys in it because I don't even know if I got those right. And then you throw three sports with three different skill sets and three different histories, it gets really tough. Yep, yep. Uh, as someone who's done a lot of different rankings throughout my professional and amateur career, I, I concur. All right, let me ask you this. I came out with 99 and 100 today. Those were Adam Butler, 99, Riley the Chance, 100. Of any of the guys we've talked about or maybe some that we haven't that were on that honorable mention, would you kick either of those guys out and put one of the other guys that we've discussed in? No, I don't think so. I mean, Riley played on two NCAA tournament teams. Was a very good player. Had a very good senior year. Got better every. Well, didn't get. I had a, I guess sophomore slump and then got better. Had a good senior year. Um, not really. You know, I think Marcus Boggs. We haven't talked. He's just a really solid player on some. You know, not so great teams earlier. You know, in the Bobby Johnson era, was a good player who played in the NFL. You know, no argument there. Trent Sherfield was a really good college player who's been in the NFL. But uh, I think Riley Chance and Adam Butler were probably more impactful to their teams than those guys that I mentioned. 
Both those guys, too, really worked through circumstances. Butler came to Vandy as an offensive lineman, got switched his redshirt freshman year to defensive line, then had to play a different sort of defensive line in the switch from the 4-3 to 3-4, which, of course, kept his numbers down. Lachance was kid who... I remember when Bryce Drew told me before the season, we're thinking of playing him at point guard. I thought, man, I don't know. But he made it work. I thought Riley had a really good year as their point guard. Didn't run the position all the time because Peyton Willis ran it some. Uh, But a guy that came off a really poor sophomore year for reasons I don't really understand, uh, and then ended up becoming a, a kid who really flourished in a role that I didn't think he was suited for under a different staff. So I thought those were big positive check marks on his resume. Yeah, he made some big points. You know, he he ended up being a guy who could, you know, score off the dribble, which he couldn't do as, as well earlier in his career. Uh, became a pretty good clutch shooter. So, yeah, no problem with those guys on the list. Actually, now that I think about it, I think Riley had some personal issues he was dealing with that had really nothing to do with him, just some family stuff. Um, that, that had an impact on that sophomore year. So if that one plays out differently, I think he assuredly moves up the list. But I feel like he belonged there even with the, a poor sophomore year. Yeah, I agree. Let's do the mailbag quickly. That is sponsored by Vanderbilt fan Josh Minton, an independent insurance agent operating out of Brentwood. Josh can take care of your insurance needs. Call him today, 615-933-1979. Email him at josh at hqinsurance.com. Follow him on Twitter at Joshua Minton HQ or at facebook.com forward slash JD Minton HQ. He is my insurance agent. Give him a try. Tell me you heard about it on this podcast. Mr. Vandy asks, who was your favorite player to cover since you became the sideline reporter for football? Um, good question. Um, Andrew East was always one of the nicest guys. Uh, he just, what I got to know him early and he was always very nice. He used to call me Mr. Light. And I told him, don't, I'm not going to talk to him if he called me Mr. Light. Um, now I guess he's Mr. Sean Johnson. So, um, but he, he was always going to carry spear was a really good dude. Um, and he had a good last couple of years. So, uh, interviewed him quite a bit. Um, most, you know, most of the guys are perfectly nice and respectful and they, they, you know, they get what I have to do. Unfortunately, you know, the last couple of years or this year was a tough year and no one really wants to be in the locker room, you know, be interviewed in the locker room right after a game. But, you know, they understand I've got a job to do and they understand the questions. So, you know, a guy like Alan Strong, I mean, Alan, um, uh, George, uh, was, has been really good this, this year. I think I did interview him for two games. So, uh, I, I don't really get to know the players that well. They kind of know who I am. Cause I'm just this older dude who's always kind of around on the sidelines. Um, but you know, Jordan, Jordan Rogers was good. I, I think I only did it with one year. His senior year was, was when I first started. Uh, Jordan Matthews was always, you know, good and nice. And so uh, most of the guys are, are, are very respectful and easy to deal with. I'll ask you a related question. Your son was the baseball bat boy. Who was his favorite player? Did he ever tell you? Yes. Um, two two guys he would say they're the nicest. Vince Condi and was it Joel McKeithen? Yeah. Yeah, Joel McKeithen was they were always super nice. And in fact, 
what we were at, my wife's son and I drove to the College World Series in 2014. And, you know, so Gabe is only about eight at this, uh, 2014, no, he's 10. So he'd been bat boy for a few years. And, you know, during the day, we were just kind of walking around in Omaha. And Vince Condi and his whole family came out of a restaurant. And they saw him like, hey, Gabe. And he like brought Gabe over and introduced him to his family and all that. And so that was super nice. Um, and then Vince saw Gabe walking around in Vandyville a couple years after his graduation, after Vince came back and couldn't believe how big Gabe was and took his picture and all that stuff. He goes, I'm going to send this one to Joel and stuff. So uh, Dansby Swanson was always very nice. I think that the year that Dansby was hurt and did not go to the Cape, uh, he coached Gabe's team in, in uh, the Vanderbilt baseball camp. So, um, you know, he most Tony Kemp was was great uh, to no one's surprise. Uh, Philip Pfeiffer. Um, you know, m most of the guys, you know, and I, I can also tell you who swears a lot too, but, uh, m most of the guys been, are great to the, to the bat boys. Yeah. I do give you a few, I go back to my first year covering Tony Mancelino was one of the nicest guys I've ever dealt with. Kemp, as you said, was an easy one. I guess he wasn't around for Julian Infante, was he? Uh, don't. I don't think maybe well yeah because Julian this just finished his fourth year and Gabe's a sophomore so you can only do it through eighth grade although he didn't he did not bat boy as much as last two years because uh just conflicts and stuff yep next question from Vanity Fan 96 Mitch if you had to guess what happens with college football in 2020 which scenario would you guess happens no season no conference games or a regular season with no fans in the stands or something along those lines? Um, I'm going to be a uh, – sorry, I was, some, something popped up on my, uh, on my email. I'm, I'm, I don't want to be a hypocrite here because I'm getting, I'm getting frustrated – not frustrated, everyone's entitled to their opinion, but like no one knows. Very few people know, and there's just you, – you'll see someone write a column, there's not going to be any sports for a year, or there'll be someone – we're going to be back in June – I just, I have no idea. I mean, I guess I, I respect the question. I want to know my, my guess. If I had gun to my head, I would say no football, but I hope I'm wrong. And that's just, that's just a had to make a split decision type thing. Um, my guess is, you know, I don't think it's something's going to drag on for a full year, but, um, I think, you know, uh, the way things are developing, you know, it's, might be hard to get groups of 60, 70, 80,000 people in, in stands. So the one thing that I'll push back on is that I've seen how some colleges, they need two months for, you know, or 60 days to get people in shape. Like back in the quote unquote old days, guys would just show up to camp. They wouldn't necessarily be in great shape. I, I don't mean to single them out. And he was never a elite physical specimen. But I remember between my junior and senior year, um, so this would have been 92, the summer of 92, I stayed in Nashville and I used to go running on the track. And I remember one time in just like late July, Carlos Thomas, old running back, was out there running and I kind of knew him a little bit. And he's just like, yeah, I got camp in a week. I got to get in shape. Like, and he was, I was in better shape than he was like running. So like back in those days, guys weren't on campus all year. They weren't in top physical shape. They used training camp to get in shape. So I, I don't think they need to be on campus for two months before the season to actually have it, you know, start. Yeah, I agree with you there. I think the thing, and neither of us, look, I, I don't ever try to speak as an expert on something I don't know about, and this is certainly one of those things, but one of my concerns is I think part of the problem, if I heard this correctly today, 
when they started opening things back up in Asia after the quarantines and things like that or whatever they did, I think that some of the rates of infection started to flare back up right after they were kind of getting over the hump. And I think that's the thing that just nobody knows what to do with. Or I think what will happen is they'll be cautious, but that's the thing that I'm kind of watching for right now is, okay, what does that do to things? Yeah, I mean, no. again, this is one of the things no one knows, and it just makes sense that unless this thing is eradicated or there's a, you know, a, a vaccine, it stands to chance that if we start convening again in huge, you know, at stadiums that if some people get it, then a lot more people are going to get it. So um, it's just it's the great unknown. Mitch, appreciate you joining me today. It's been an interesting podcast. Uh, we did 46 minutes, which frankly, I didn't think we could do under these circumstances, but fortunately found a lot of material to talk about. You guys are still busy at The Athletic, churning out plenty of interesting content. Tell people where they can find that and where they can find you on Twitter. Yep. Uh, thanks, Chris. And uh, at the uh, at uh, Mitch Light. And I did something last week that we can talk about next week because it's definitely an evergreen topic. Uh, the best college football players in from the state of Tennessee to where each jersey number one through ninety nine. A lot of Vanderbilt guys on that list. A lot of tough decisions. So maybe that's something we can talk about next week. You can you can look that up. And for anyone who's not a subscriber, we have a ninety day free trial, so you can hop on and, and read. I'm working on. Two other Vanderbilt stories right now that'll be out in the next couple of weeks. One I think everyone uh, will enjoy. Uh, so a lot of good content there. If you're you know a fan of any, you know we cover every sport and every team basically. So uh, it's not just Vanderbilt. So uh, yeah, so you can catch that at the Athletic, uh, uh, and I'm at uh, Mitch Light. You know they have like different eras in sports. Like they had the two platoon era in football and the dead ball era in baseball and all those things. I think just in general sports, this is going to be remembered as the list era because that's about all we have to do these days yeah yeah i know we're doing something we're also doing um they're they're up uh, throughout all the site like where they're asking you know all the athletic writers to to write something about their favorite player like joe rex wrote who grew up in michigan wrote something on isaiah thomas and stuff so i didn't you know I, my job my main job is an editor i i write some when i when i can i have the time so they'll be across you know people all these writers favorite players and then we're doing a lot of what ifs different franchises take different turns you know about grizzlies writers what what if the grizzlies did not take Hashim to beat number two over not over, overall in 2009 so you know there's a lot of good ideas but you're right at some point the well is going to run dry was al Leiter your favorite no he's not my favorite he was one of my favorites i will my favorite baseball player of all times like i could write it, but no one would care is a guy named bobby brown who played uh, Early '80s Yankees. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I played um, the '80s Yankees. Um, and my favorite, Jerry Mumphrey, was the center fielder in 1980. He got hurt, which I was happy about because then Bobby Brown played basically every day for the 1980 season to get 280 with 14 home runs and 26 stolen bases, I believe. And then played some on the '81 team, made an error in the '81 World Series, which was devastating. Then got traded to Seattle got released, got picked up by the Padres. And then Kevin McReynolds got hurt in the NLCS. So Bobby Brown played in center field for the Padres in 84 World Series, and he went one for 14. And I was I was 13 years old, and I was devastated um, that he, can I say, sucked so bad in the World Series. Um, and then he's been out of bat. I've Googled him a million times. I think he ended up in jail for some sort of tax evasion or tax fraud. So I don't know why. But he's my. I have his bat up here in my bonus room. I bought it when I was a kid. 
his actual bat he used in the game. I think I bought it for like 10 bucks. So that's one of those, you picked him as your favorite player and you're not sure why? No idea why. No huh. idea why. Dale Murphy was mine. That was a much more Boring. mainstream pick. Yeah, exactly. Boring. Dale Murphy Anybody did not end up Dale in jail. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, hey, he might end up in jail. You never know. Um, uh, yeah, Dale Murphy will end up in jail. Actually. Pandemics make people do crazy things, so yeah, it could happen. Exactly. Now, I was, that reminds me one thing before I let you go. We were talking the other day. I don't remember if this was on podcast or not, but I think you dropped a reference to it being at a World Series game, or it was some famous game. I'm trying to remember what that was now. I think it involved the Yankees. Maybe it was a no-hitter? No, I was, I was the Pine Oh, Target. that's what it was. I, I couldn't believe that. I never knew that about you. What do you yeah, remember? Pine. Yeah, Pine Tar game. I, was, uh, I watched it recently with my son on MLB Network, uh, so that was fun. I was also at another famous sport New York sporting event you might you'd have to google this one I was much younger but I think in 78 or 79 I was at the uh Boston Bruins New York Rangers hockey game and the Bruins went up into the stands after the game and started beating the crap out of the Ranger fans it was very uh it was it was sort of like the the uh the the the, the Pistons fight at the the melee at the palace is that what it was called whatever it was called there yeah. but uh uh, this was with uh, hockey players and skates involved, too. I had been to one infamous fight game. I cannot remember if I've said this on the podcast. I think I have at some point. I'll see if you can guess. Uh, no idea. I'm sorry. <laughs> I went to the Nolan Ryan-Robin Ventura game. Oh, wow. My brother and I and a buddy of ours had decided we wanted to see Nolan Ryan pitch because we'd never seen him pitch in person. So we made the trip out there. It's the only time I ever saw him pitch. And my brother had a really nice camera and had just gone down, not like the field level on the field, but like the concourse to take some pictures and literally just got down there and he hit Ventura with the pitch. So he didn't have his camera focused or anything. He was just fiercely snapping all these shots out of focus and it was kind of funny. He came back with this whole roll of maybe 20 pictures of the brawl. I don't know that any of them were any good, but uh, that was my memory of that. I also went to the uh, – and I, I, I was – we left after this. I was still in high school, but I went to the game. Do you remember when Pete Rose bumped Dave Pallone and got 30 days? I was at that game, and I left about vaguely. an inning before that. Vaguely, yes. Not, not. I mean, I remember it happening, but not the circumstances. So. Yeah, there was actually a brawl in that game too. Somebody for the Reds hit Daryl Strawberry, and he charged the mound. All right, good for Strawman. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, I've kept you long enough, Mitch. Thanks for joining us, and we'll catch you again next week. All right, sounds good, Chris. Take care. He's Mitch Light. I'm Chris Lee. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We'll have more episodes coming later this week. <laughs>